This is episode 82 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, you'll hear about Houdini and his ghost house, and a lot more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 82. And welcome, my friends, to the first episode of season number five. Uh, I mistakenly said at the end of the last podcast episode that it was season four that we were about to go into. But no, we just finished up season four, and now we are in season five. By the way, it took me forever to finish that Chingling Fu episode, I wasted so much time trying to find a record of what Leon Herman thought of Fu after the, the little show thing that they were supposed to have been involved in. And uh, if I had just spent the time to dig a little deeper on uh, if the event happened or not, I wouldn't have wasted so much time. Uh, apparently, it was reported in the Sphinx magazine that the that uh, Fu attended a performance of Leon Herman, and Fu was not so was not so impressed with Leon, and not very pleasant to him. And anyway, it turns out um, the event may have not taken place at all. Uh, maybe that part of it did, but the uh, the second part where Fu rented a theater and Leon Herman saw the show. Um, I don't think that happened at all. And I don't think Fu was snarky to Leon Herman, even if he did see him. So, cause it was very much out of character for him. Anyway, wasted too much time on that and put me behind. And, uh, so anyway, the other day I decided I'm going to finish this podcast. It was noon, uh, I believe on Sunday. And I said, I'm going to finish this podcast. I'm going to be done by two o'clock. So I started working on it diligently, and sure enough, by 2 o'clock, I was done. Unfortunately, I expected to be done by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I finished at 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, That's how much uh, work goes into some of these podcasts. It's crazy, the amount of uh, work and all the books that are laying around. As a matter of fact, here's here's just a sampling of uh, what was sitting on the table here when I finished so I had the Chingling Fu book, uh, America's First Chinese Superstar by Samuel Porteous. And I'm sorry if I keep pronouncing your name wrong. I apologize about that. Then there was A Gift from the Gods by Val Andrews, A Pictorial History of Conjurers in the Theater by David Price, The Silence of Chungling Su by David Carr, The House of Mystery, Volumes 1 and 2, David Abbott, Todd Carr, and Teller. Uh, Silent Mora by William Rauscher, Adelaide Herman, Queen of Magic, that autobiography that she wrote, The Glorious Deception by Jim Steinmeier, The Riddle of Chung Ling Su by Will Dexter, all of the major Houdini biographies, and a ton of Ask Alexander documents on Fu, and, oh, but I was glad I got it done, and um, I hope you enjoyed that particular episode. You may have also noticed that um, I did my very best to not let Chung Ling Su overtake the episode because I wanted it to be about Ching Ling Fu. Now, of course, the two of them crossed paths and and they're both integral to each other's stories, but I didn't want William Robinson to overtake it. So I, I hope I did a good job with that. I hope you enjoyed that. Now, 
We are in season five, and I'm going to attempt to start one of my Houdini weeks, even though technically it should have been last week, because last week was Magic Week, um, and Monday was, uh, yesterday was Halloween, um, uh, but I had a very busy week last week of performing, and actually yesterday, Monday, I drove to Memphis, Tennessee to do two shows uh, last evening, and then I drove straight back to Nashville a little over 200 miles, just so I could get to work on episode 82, this one right here. So so that's how dedicated I am to the podcast and to you listeners. There are two kinds of people listening right now. There are those who know a lot about Houdini and those who don't. And it's okay no matter which group you fall into. For those of you not in the know, Houdini and his ghost house refers to a small cabinet made of connected pieces of piping and covered over with fabric. The main ghost house appears to have been maybe around three feet tall, possibly three feet square, maybe four feet square. Uh, It was open on one side, and I believe it was open on the top. There appears to have been a way to close off the back of the cabinet, so to completely obscure the view from the audience. Uh, Patrick Culleton once told me that he was sure Houdini's ghost house was red, and sure enough, I found several references to the red ghost house. One of those references came from the book The Great Houdini by Derek Tate, and it's also mentioned that it's read in the Houdini biography by Kenneth Silverman. However, we also have this description in The Secret Life of Houdini by William Kalush and Larry Sloman. They describe an event that took place on June 27, 1900 in London, and the report comes directly from Inspector Melville's diary. The event took place at the Alhambra, and the manager, Dundas Slater, had invited and encouraged members of the press to come and bring their own restraints and try to defy Houdini. And I'll spare you the various details of his escapes. However, uh, this is how the ghost house is described. A small, waist-high enclosure consisting of metal piping and black fabric that hid Houdini on three sides and could shield him totally by drawing a curtain in the front. Notice this quote says the ghost house was made of black fabric. The origins of the ghost house. Well, I believe the reason it's called the ghost house harkens back to the days of spiritualism. In fact, it's possible that the larger curtain cabinet that Houdini used for his metamorphosis was actually once a spirit cabinet. And rather than be so blatant, because this uh, smaller one was pipe and drape and, you know, fabric, instead of calling it a spirit cabinet, Houdini nicknamed it the ghost house. Uh, The smaller one, again, is essentially the same thing as the one used for um, metamorphosis. It just doesn't, well, actually... It doesn't have a top, I guess. I think that's the only difference. And, of course, the size. In the book Houdini's Escapes and Magic by Walter Gibson, there's a unique chapter called Houdini's Cabinets. And the first sentence of that chapter is rather telling. It goes like this, quote, In the majority of his escapes, Houdini used a cabinet. And invariably, all other escape artists have done the same. Think about that for a second. The sub-trunk had a curtain cabinet. The milk can had a curtain cabinet. The water torture cell had a curtain cabinet. Hmm. 
Very interesting. Uh, speaking of interesting, there's an article in the September 26, 1906, uh, Washington Times newspaper that describes a challenge Houdini faced by escaping from a packing crate on stage. According to the article, the ghost house was placed over the top of the crate and then Houdini began his escape. Later, the article mentions the red curtain obscuring the box from view. This account makes me think that perhaps in this case, it was not the small ghost house, but rather another fabric cabinet of a larger size because the uh, packing crate's going to be bigger than, you know, um, probably bigger than the, the smaller ghost house anyway. So I have a feeling it was maybe the metamorphosis uh, curtain cabinet or another one. They, they very likely had more than one. A similar escape from a paper bag also describes Houdini's ghost house, but again, I think this was the larger version. In the Silverman book, there is a description of the milk can escape, and again, they mention bringing in the ghost house to cover the can. So it sounds like all fabric cabinets uh, in Houdini's show were considered ghost houses. The next paragraph from Houdini's Escapes and Magic reveals a little bit more. The cabinet must not only be unsuspicious, but it must stand an examination by committee members who go through it before the escape takes place. That's interesting. And for some reason, that paragraph made me think of Houdini's early straitjacket escapes. Now, Houdini early on would be placed inside a straitjacket on stage in full view of everyone, but then he would go inside a curtain cabinet to uh, do his escape. Now, his brother, Hardeen, was doing the exact same thing over in, over in England. However, folks over there complained that because he was in this curtain cabinet, somebody was letting him out um, while he was inside the cabinet. So Hardeen was like, wait a minute, okay, I'll, I don't need to be in the cabinet, I guess. So he started to present the straitjacket escape in full view. Now, here's an interesting little thing as well. Guy Jarrett in his book on illusion concepts, reproduces a letter where he suggests that the methodology to the water torture cell is someone letting Houdini out. And he goes on to say, if that's not the method, that's how it should be done. Really interesting if you think about it. Houdini certainly learned the value of completely open escapes like the straitjacket and rope escapes, and there were some handcuff escapes he was able to do uh, in full view, like when he, uh, he, he would wrap uh, a set of cuffs on his leg. Um, one of the, I, I can't remember if it's in a biography, or I know it was in uh, one of the documentaries because I just watched it the other day where they talked about Houdini had a lead plate strapped to his uh, to his leg that he would use to wrap these cuffs on and they would pop open. And I remember the first time I heard that, I thought, well, that's probably a made-up method, but I'll tell you a little secret. I saw the lead plate in the Ken Klosterman collection, saw it with my own eyes, and I happen to know from experience that it is possible to wrap certain cuffs uh, in a certain way and they will pop open. So... That was actually accurate information. And again, uh, Houdini would have liked that kind of thing because he would have been in front of people. They could see him actually do that particular escape. If you think about it, the, the, the poor man spent half of his career hidden from the audience, and yet he was a superstar. 
I mean, he was behind the curtain in practically everything. When he was doing jail escapes, nobody saw him do that. When he was underwater, nobody saw him do that. I mean, he was, uh, it's no wonder he wanted to do movies because people got to see him. So it's uh, pretty remarkable. In a newspaper article from the Pittsburgh Daily Post, May 19, 1907, a reporter says to Houdini, the secret in your power lies in the fact that you're probably the most expert locksmith in the world, does it not? Houdini answered, practically yes, but not entirely. I can open the ordinary handcuff by simply wrapping it on the floor. I understand the mechanism so thoroughly that I know exactly how to tap it to have it open. Uh, For such easy tricks, I don't mind for the spectators to watch me, which is what I just said. Uh, It's when I have something particularly difficult to perform that I retire to my ghost house to preserve my secret. Now, if we examine the historical record, the first time the ghost house is mentioned in a Houdini biography, it's in the Harold Kellogg book, where he describes Houdini's mirror challenge. And indeed... This is one of the most important challenges from his career. And as far as I can tell, this particular escape features the only known photograph of the ghost house that appears. It appeared in the newspaper, but it's, as far as I know, the only one I've ever seen. Now, there are a number of newspapers that featured illustrations, drawings of Houdini and his ghost house. But this was the only known photograph that I know of. Um, If you know differently, you can let me know. Perhaps you might be interested in hearing a report of the Mirror Challenge. Um, As a matter of fact, I have the, uh, the actual newspaper report, and I'm going to share with you what went down. So listen closely. It's March 18th, 1904. The Daily Illustrated Mirror newspaper. The headline reads, Houdini's Great Victory. And then there's a subheadline. How he picked the mirror handcuffs in one hour and ten minutes. Telegram of thanks. Not a seat was vacant in the mighty Hippodrome yesterday afternoon when Harry Houdini, the handcuff king, stepped into the arena and received an ovation worthy of a monarch. For days past, all of London had been aware that on Saturday night last, a representative of the mirror had stepped into the arena in response to Houdini's challenge to anybody to come forward and successfully manacle him, and had there and then made a match with America's Mystery Arch for Thursday afternoon. In his travels, the journalist had encountered a Birmingham blacksmith who had spent five years of his life in devising a lock which, he alleged, no mortal man could pick. Promptly seeing he was in touch with a good thing, the pressman had at once put an option upon the handcuff containing this lock and brought it back to London with him. It was submitted to London's best locksmiths, who were unanimous in the admiration of it. Asserting that in all their experience they had never before seen such a wonderful mechanism. As a result, the editors of the Mirror determined to put the lock back to the severest test possible by challenging Mr. Houdini to be manacled with the cuffs. Like a true sportsman, Mr. Houdini accepted our challenge in the spirit in which it was given, although, on his own confession, he did not like the look of the lock.
Mr. Houdini's call was for three o'clock yesterday, but so intense was the excitement that the 4,000 spectators present could scarcely restrain their impatience. Whilst the six excellent turns which preceded him, cheered to the echo on other occasions, got through with their business. Waiting quietly and unnoticed by the arena steps, the mirror representative watched Mr. Houdini's entrance and joined in giving the opponent to be, in the lists, one of the finest ovations mortal man has ever received. I am ready, said Houdini, concluding his address to the audience, to be manacled by the mirror representative if he be present. A hearty burst of applause greeted the journalist as he stepped into the arena and shook hands with the handcuff king. Then, in the fewest possible words, the pressman called for volunteers from the audience to act upon as a committee to see fair play, and Mr. Houdini asked his friends also to step into the arena and watch his interests. This done, the journalist placed the handcuffs on Mr. Houdini's wrists, and snapped them. Then, with an effort, he turned the key six times, thus securing the bolt as firmly as possible. The committee being satisfied as to the security of the handcuff, Mr. Houdini said, Ladies and gentlemen, I am now locked up in a handcuff that has taken a British mechanic five years to make. I do not know whether I'm going to get out of it or not, but I can assure you I'm going to do my best. Applauded to the echo, the Mysteriarch then retired within the cabinet that contains so many of his secrets. All correct chronometers chronicled 315. Try and say that ten times fast. In a long line in front of the stage stood the committee. Before them, in the center of the arena, stood the little cabinet Houdini lovers loved to call the Ghost House. Restlessly pacing to and fro, the mere representative kept an anxious eye on the ghost house. Those who have never stood in the position of a challenger can scarcely realize the sense of responsibility felt by one who has openly thrown down the gauntlet to a man who is popular with the public. The mirror has placed its reliance on the work of a British mechanic, and if Houdini succeeded in escaping in the first few minutes, it was felt that the proceedings would develop into a mere farce. But time went by. Five, ten, fifteen, twenty minutes sped. Still, the band played on. Then, at twenty-two minutes, Mr. Houdini put his head out of the ghost house, and this was a signal for a great outburst of cheering. He is free! He is free! shouted several and then universal disappointment was felt when it was ascertained that he had only put his head outside the cabinet in order to get a good look at the lock in the strongest possible light. The band broke into a dreamy waltz as Houdini once more disappeared within the canopy. The disappointed spectators looked at their watches, murmured, What a shame! gave Houdini an encouraging clap, and the journalist resumed his stride. At 35 minutes, Mr. Houdini again emerged. His collar was broken. Water trickled down in great channels down his face, and he looked generally warm and uncomfortable. 
My knees hurt, he explained to the audience. I'm not done yet. The house went frantic with delight at their favorite resolve, and this suggested an idea to the mirror representative. He spoke rapidly to Mr. Parker, the hippodrome manager, who was at the side of the stalls. That gentleman looked thoughtful for a moment and then nodded his head and whispered something to the attendant. Presently, the man appeared bearing a large cushion. The mirror had no desire to submit Mr. Houdini to a torture test, said the representative, and if Mr. Houdini will permit me, I shall have great pleasure in offering him the use of this cushion. The handcuff king was glad, evidently, of the uh, rest for his knees, for he pulled it through into the ghost house. Ladies trembled with suppressed excitement, and despite the weary wait, not a yawn was noticed throughout the vast audience. For twenty minutes more the band played on, and then Houdini was seen to emerge once more from the cabinet, still handcuffed. Almost a moan broke out over the vast assemblage. As they noticed, he looked, ugh, he looked pitiable from his exertions and much exhausted. He looked for a moment and then advanced to where his challenger stood. Will you remove the handcuffs for a moment, he said, in order that I may take off my coat. For a few seconds, the journalist considered. Then he replied, ah, I am indeed sorry to disoblige, Mr. Houdini, but I cannot unlock those cuffs unless you admit you are defeated. The reason was obvious. Mr. Houdini had seen the cuffs locked, but he had never seen them unlocked. Consequently, the pressman thought there might be more in this request than appeared on the surface. Houdini, evidently, does not stick at trifles. He maneuvered until he got a penknife from his waistcoat pocket. This he opened with his teeth, and then, turning his coat inside out over his head, calmly proceeded to cut his coat to pieces. The novelty of the proceeding delighted the audience, who yelled themselves frantic. The mirror representative had... A rather five minutes of it at this juncture. Many of the audience did not see the reason of his refusal and expressed their disapproval of his actions loudly. Grimly, however, he looked on and watched Mr. Houdini once more re-enter the cabinet. Time sped on, and presently somebody recorded the fact that the mystery arch had been manacled just one hour. Ten minutes more of anxious waiting, and then... A surprise was in store for everyone. Victory! The band were just finishing a stirring march when, with a great shout of victory, Houdini bounded from the cabinet, holding the shiny handcuffs in his hands free. A mighty roar of gladness went up. Men waved their hats, shook hands with one another. Ladies waved their handkerchiefs, and the committee, rushing forward as one man, shouldered Houdini and bore him in triumph around the arena. But the strain had been too much for the handcuffed king, and he sobbed as though his heart would break. With a mighty effort, however, he regained his composure and received the congratulations of the mirror in the true sportsmanlike spirit he had shown throughout the contest.
The journalist intimated to the audience that a, so a beautiful, solid silver model of the handcuffs would be made and asked Mr. Houdini's permission to present them to him at no distant date in the future. Mr. Houdini told the audience that he had been challenged many times before, but he had never experienced such gentlemanly treatment and fair play in any contest he had been called upon to enter. Mr. Houdini's wife was present at the performance, but just before the coat was cut from him, she was so overcome that she had to leave the Hippodrome. Mr. Houdini calls his charming wife his mascot. Eleven years ago, she brought me luck, says the handcuff marvel, and it has been with me ever since. I never had any before I married her. Mrs. Houdini is a fair, cultured, beautiful American lady, petite, fascinating, and clever. Late last night, Mr. Houdini sent us the following telegram. Allow me to thank you for the open and upright manner in which your representative treated me in today's contest. I must say that it was one of the hardest, but at the same time, one of the fairest tests I have ever had, Harry Houdini. And that is from the Daily Illustrated Mirror on March 18, 1904. That is uh, what you would have read if you had picked up the paper the day after the event. So the big question is, how did Houdini do it? How did he escape from the mirror cuffs? How did he overtake this challenge? Um, it's interesting because from the Kellogg book to modern uh, opinions, uh, things have changed a little bit. Uh, initially, I think it was believed that the entire challenge was the idea of the mirror newspaper. Over time, that began to change, and people began to theorize and realize that maybe Houdini had a little bit more to do with this challenge than uh, they first thought. Uh, my feeling on that, um, if, I, if I look at the entire event, everything that took place, to try to see, uh, is there a hole here somewhere that I can go, oh, yeah, this is a sign that um, maybe some of this was um, orchestrated. Uh, to me... It's the cutting away of the coat. That, to me, signals that this was planned in advance. Because you're just not going to... Well, first off, how come he had a penknife in his pocket? Did they not search Houdini to see if he had keys or tools or picks or anything? How did he have a penknife? You know, so he had a penknife. He pulls the penknife out, and he cuts the jacket off himself... Um, this is not something that's going to be easily done if you've got both hands free, let alone having your hands in handcuffs, rigid handcuffs on top of it. So I have a feeling that somewhere in, uh, in London there were probably uh, a pile of uh, jackets that Houdini cut off that week just to prepare for this particular moment in the uh, escape. Now, having said that, was the rest of it, was it was it? Let's say, was it phony? I don't think so. Um, I think maybe Houdini did have something to do with, uh, with the challenge, because let's face it, if you look through the history of Houdini, uh, often there were challenges from a brewery, for example. Can Houdini escape from this uh, um, keg of beer? And what it turned out to be was uh, the milk can filled with beer. Uh, same thing with a, a dairy. Can Houdini escape from this? And it was Houdini's milk can filled with, with milk. So he did often orchestrate these, uh, 
these challenges. But in the case of the mirror, I think the uh, I think the mirror legitimately challenged him. But Houdini may have had something to do with the uh, creation of the cuffs. Now, do I think the cuffs were were gimmicked? Nope. Um, how did Houdini get the cuffs off? Well, there are a number of methods and theories. First off, one of the early theories that came up was at some point in the escape, um, Bess Houdini brought over a glass of water to Houdini. And some people said, aha, there it is right there. There was a key in the glass of water, and that's how Houdini got out. Except the key for this thing is like six inches long, so it's not likely that the key was in there. Um, the cushion. Yeah, there's another moment then. Well, maybe there was a key in the cushion. Well, here's and oh, and let me just add this: that uh, the amazing Randy uh, said that uh, there's only one way to open the mirror cuffs, and that's with the key. Okay, and I, you know what, Randy's not wrong. There is only one way to open the mirror cuffs, and that is with the key. Uh, I just don't think. <clears throat> that they put the key in the cushion because if you have the mirror cuffs on, if you look the way that these cuffs are, are placed on, they're not like um, they're not like a lot of handcuffs that have a, a ring or a couple uh, links in between. These are rigid cuffs. So your your wrists are stuck side by side and you have no movement. So even if you had a key, you're not you're not gonna uh, you're not gonna be able to get the key in the keyhole and on top of it, because of this particular type of lock, a Brahma lock, it needed a very delicate touch in order to. You had to have pressure on the, um, you know, on the key in the lock, and and there were a lot of things you had to do in order to uh, to open it, and you had to turn it six times. So, hmm, I I'm very dubious of the fact he had a key. Do I think he picked it? Uh, yeah, I'm dubious of that as well. Uh, how did he escape? Well, I believe I know. However, this particular podcast, I don't give away secrets. I'm trying to figure out a way to let some folks know my theory, my particular theory, um, but I don't want it to go out to the general public, and this podcast is for the general public, so I apologize about that. Um, I, I, I keep in mind, this is my theory, so... I could be wrong, too, um, although I'm not. I'm sure I'm right. But anyway, that was play-by-play um, -play of the uh, Houdini's Mirror Handcuff Challenge from 1904, uh, his use of the ghost house, and so exciting. And I'm looking here at an illustration from the Daily Illustrated Mirror, the illustration shows a picture uh, or a drawing of the ghost house in this particular um, a drawing, which is cool. But as I said, the earlier in the newspaper they had, um, or actually not earlier, but uh, in other editions of the newspaper, there was a photograph of the entire committee on the stage with Houdini, and you could see in the picture the, uh, the ghost house. So... There's um, there's more to that ghost house than that meets the eye, although I don't believe the ghost house, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, I don't think it was gimmicked in any way, gimmicked or gaffed or whatever terminology that Penn Gillette might add to this particular discussion. Um, however, I believe the ghost house 
had its secrets, and I'll leave it at that. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this first episode for season five, a little uh, a deeper dive into Houdini, his ghost house, and his mirror handcuff challenge. I will be back very, very soon with a, another episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, do me a favor. If there's a way, and, I, and it changes from um, service to service, but if there's a way to like the podcast, please do that. If you listen via Apple Podcasts and you're so willing to give me a five-star review, I'd appreciate that as well. That helps me in the rankings there. And uh, until next time, I'm Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Please be well and stay safe.